0: Mark chapter 11, and we're going to read uh, a fairly long passage, uh, verse 1 to 26. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie the colt and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive those out who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. And let's bow again in prayer before we look to the word of the Lord and the Lord of the word today. God, our Father, we thank you today that we can boldly approach you in Jesus' name, and we can expect you to hear us. And we thank you that at such a great cost, you brought us the treasure of your word, even the cost of your own dear son. And so we pray now, O oh Lord, that you would make us ready listeners, and we, we say with your servant Samuel. Here I am, O Lord, your servant listens. And so help your word now by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to move deeply into our hearts. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts today, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we were in Disneyland in December, It was difficult for me uh, at various points not to reflect uh, on the nature of the kingdom uh, during those three days. Disneyland, after all, calls itself a magical kingdom. In fact, in the early days, I believe in the 1980s at least, you could uh, purchase a packet of tickets, the booklet of 10, and that booklet of tickets was called the keys (laughs) to the kingdom. It's a far cry, I think, from the binding and the loosing of gospel ministry. But Disneyland is named after a kingdom. It has a castle, it has a perimeter. It has these fortified gates through which none can pass, except those who are permitted as its special guests. And as a kingdom should go, there's a tangible excitement in the air, I experience, because kingdoms are something you should be excited about. And I recall vividly on our third morning, as we were going into California Adventureland, we got there early and we were waiting for the gates of the kingdom to open and we'd gone through the turnstiles, but we hadn't yet been permitted into the larger park. We were in the outer courts and the gates were shut to get in. And uh, it was quite early and it was gray and it was drizzling and quite cool for a California day, not quite California dreaming, as the song goes. And there was this vast sea, just a vast sea of people, more than I could count, heads upon heads upon heads upon heads, and they're all shoulder to shoulder, cheek to jowl, waiting, waiting for the gates to open. And you could just feel this palpable excitement in the air as young and old alike, because kingdoms are for young and old, after all, it was undeniably electric, just electric, And it was difficult for me not to ponder the nature of the kingdom of God. That is the destiny of this thing that we're supposed to be excited about as God's people. And in Mark's gospel today, we we see, as we do in other histories, we see a people who are genuinely excited about the kingdom of God. The Jewish people are in a state of anticipation. It's springtime. The people of faith have been gathering from all around thousands upon thousands of pilgrims who are making their way to Jerusalem for the great Passover feast. This week, this week long festival that celebrated the saving acts of God, that God had not only delivered them from an enemy that was far too strong for them, but God was delivering them for something. God had delivered them for a kingdom. As God says to Moses in Exodus 19, "Moses, I want you to tell the people of Israel something. I want you to define them for me." He says, "You have seen, O Israel, what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings." And I brought you to myself. Now, O Israel, obey me. Now, O Israel, keep my covenant, and you shall be to me a treasured possession among all the peoples of the world. You shall be mine, he says. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You shall be to me a holy nation, a peculiar people. And so, in the season of Passover, in spite of Roman oppression, in spite of being ridiculed and mocked and beaten down into the dust of that Judean countryside, these teeming multitudes, even though they've lost the glories of the father David, their 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 uh, the kingdom of uh, of David the king, all of these multitudes, they approach Jerusalem with mounting joy to celebrate the saving acts of God, that he had saved them from a people that was far too strong for them and that he had promised them that they would be a people with a kingdom, his peculiar possession. That's the context here, and this year, of all years, the excitement was particularly acute and pronounced because word... (laughs) had been circulating across the Judean countryside that God who had delivered them from Egypt was on the move again. You see, for centuries, the Jewish people had been nourishing their hearts on the thought that God would raise up a leader for them. For centuries, they'd been nourishing themselves in the thought that God would finally deliver them from all of their enemies and that he would establish a kingdom that could withstand any assault. Moses had promised that in Deuteronomy 18, he says, The Lord your God, he will raise up for you a prophet from men among you, from your own brothers, a prophet just like me. It is to him you shall listen. And before Moses, Jacob had prophesied that this leader would come from the tribe of Judah and the scepter of rule, he says, Jacob promises, will not depart from this man And all the peoples, he says, will render this man obedience. And then Jacob adds this in in Genesis 49. He says, you shall know this leader by this. The colt of his donkey will be tied to a vine. And for centuries, the people of Israel had pinned their hopes on this coming Messiah. Behold, wrote the prophet Zechariah, your king, he's coming to you. He will not delay. He's coming and he is righteous and he's bringing salvation for you with him. And he will come this way. He will come humble and he will come mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the fall of a donkey. He will come. And this year in particular, this messianic people who had always been hearing the word of the Messiah and, and hoping in this Messiah, now they were hearing words and seeing signs that perhaps God was indeed on the move, that a prophet of God had risen up from among them. And just like Moses, he was performing remarkable signs that none could deny. In fact, just before Passover, what happened? In Bethany. There was a man named Lazarus who had died. And this Jesus, as the word says, had gone to that town and he had spoken to death itself. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. In spite of Jesus' best intentions to keep his identity quiet, word begins to sweep through the band of pilgrims. And the word begins to be spoken that the prophet had come. A leader has come that is showing the same signs that Moses did. He has power over diseases. You remember Moses put his hand in, it was He put it back and it was whole. This Jesus, he's doing the same thing. He's making the leprous whole. A prophet like me will rise up. And in an anticipation, by the time Jesus arrives just outside Jerusalem, the air was electric, as people begin to believe the gates now are begin, beginning to open up. In fact, electric doesn't say the half of it, as I mentioned to the kids today. In Matthew's gospel, we read that the whole city of Jerusalem, by the time Jesus comes, as the pilgrims begin to enter into that city, the whole city we read is stirred up by an enthusiastic crowd. And it's a rather weak translation in the ESV. In the Greek, Matthew writes, Essesthe, and it's where we get our word seismic from. It's as if Matthew is saying when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and the people begin to be stirred up by the thought of what might now happen, there's an earthquake of praise as they begin to cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. I want you to notice that at this point, Jesus no longer cloaks his purpose. Jesus has specifically arranged to enter Jerusalem on the messianic emblem of a donkey. And there's a password that Jesus has given his, this is no, this is no, uh, spur of the moment decision. Jesus has given his disciples a password to say to those who own the donkey if anyone should ask what he's, what he's doing. Jesus knows that no one's going to be confused as to what this means. And even though the Jews had seriously misread the scriptures, in many ways they were illiterate people who had read the word and who had pinned their hopes on the Messiah who would come. He would come humbly and he would come mounted on the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus now, with this visible image, he makes a full and plain and transparent assertion and proclamation of who he really is. He says, I am the one who Zechariah has prophesied about. I am the one like Moses who would be raised up among you. Listen to me. And the crowd goes wild as he approaches on a donkey, and they spread their cloaks and their palms as a sign of homage. It's an impromptu red carpet, and they begin to chant ecstatically and liturgically the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 118, on one side, one crowd says, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And the other side answers with blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the other side erupts with blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father, David. Blessed is the kingdom that Messiah will bring. And the other side answers by the shout of Hosanna in the highest. You see, Jesus receives it all. He doesn't stop it. In fact, later when the Jewish authorities, they come to Jesus and they say, Don't you know how inappropriate this is? Don't you know what they're ascribing to you? Don't you know what they're saying to you about you being the Messiah? And Jesus responds by saying, this in fact is so important, what they're saying. This is so right that if they didn't say it, the very stones would cry out my praise. So much excitement about the kingdom by a people oppressed by a foreign power. Now you'd expect that Jesus would walk right into Jerusalem and he'd go straight up to Pilate and Moses-wise he'd say, let my people go. But notice what Mark does here. Immediately following all of this expectant and joyous festivity, Jesus makes his way not to the Romans, but he makes his way to the temple. Jesus doesn't challenge the political oppressors, but he goes to challenge the spiritual. And there's something about this episode of the temple that I want you to notice. It's sandwiched between these two lessons of the fig tree, as if Mark is trying to contextualize and aiming to contextualize the lesson of the temple by the lesson of the fig tree. Jesus, when he gets there to the temple, is furious. He comes now as the undisguised Messiah and he comes, to, he comes to inspect the temple as the Lord of the temple and what he finds there is nothing near to what God had prescribed for worship. The temple had become man-centered. It had become the, the business of financial trade that had vaulted itself and had taken the place of the visibility and the importance of God. God. Jesus inspects the temple and he sees that it's not fixed upon the honor of his father. It's not characterized by prayer, which is the confession of human need and the confession of divine might. And the people are no longer consumed with the thought of God. There is no trembling. The name of God has been reduced And Jesus looks around and he sees that all these religious leaders are no longer moved by the glory of God. They're no longer afraid. In fact, so far are they removed from the fear of God that they go on to steal and to rob right in God's presence. That is, they dare to be lawbreakers in the very temple itself. And Jesus is angry. And his zeal for his father's glory and for his father's house, it erupts like a living flame. And he begins to drive the people out of the temple. Now, most theatrical presentations, if you've seen any theatrical presentation of Jesus, makes this a rather brief moment. Jesus winds together a whip. Jesus flips over a few tables. Jesus whips some people out. He says a few words. And then he's gone. But look at how Mark, look how Mark describes this. Verse, verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus positions himself like a firm tree in the midst of that temple of God, and he refuses to let people get through because they're going about it the wrong way. He's staying there. And he's guarding his father's house. And then in verse 17, if you look before you, he doesn't say, "Just my father's house shall be called a house of prayer," and then leave. But Mark, uh, you don't see this in your uh, edition. But in the Greek tense, he or the Greek text, he uses the imperfect tense, Kai edadaskin. That is, and he was teaching them, which implies a long process. He says he was teaching them, not that he just said something and left, but he stays and he teaches. And then look in verse 19, he stays until the evening. He's there. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel we read that the sick were brought to him in the temple and he healed the sick in that place. Now you see what Mark is doing. The problem for the Messiah to address and to solve is not the political oppression. The problem is that there's a people that should be bearing the fruit of godliness. That should be a treasured possession among all peoples. A holy nation that bears the sign that they belong to a holy God. A people who obey the voice of the Lord from the heart. Why? Because they love him. And yet it isn't happening. And yet they don't. And Jesus sees a fig tree with leaves, but there's no fruit. It looks healthy, and it looks promising from afar, but upon closer inspection when he gets there, there's nothing there. And with one dreadful word, Jesus curses the fig tree, and it dies. And we realize that what the Lord said in John 15, it's alarmingly true. Every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. From afar, the temple and the worship of the people of God, it looked healthy and it looked vibrant. But upon closer inspection, there is no fruit. the love of God and love towards the neighbor, which was to characterize the worship of the people of God, Jesus says it's nowhere to be seen. And so Jesus doesn't go to Pilate and say, let my people go. The enemy to be defeated is not Rome. The enemy was Israel. The enemy was the people of God that needed to be saved. And my brothers and sisters, very simply today, we can look very healthy from afar, can we not? We can look very healthy, but on the inside, in the temple of our hearts, where true religion takes place, we can be barren and full of dead men's bones. The externals can look very good in our life. We can look vibrant to those who don't expect too closely, but the green leaves can just be a disguise for our fruitlessness. And our only hope in this life is that we may cry out with earnest hearts, Hosanna. Lord, save me not from that. Lord, save me not from this, but Lord, save me from myself. I am the problem. I am the threat. I, Lord, am the evil. I am the disease. And this is not just a prayer for the unconverted. It's a prayer for all the people of God who want to be excited about the kingdom but find in their hearts that it's so very easy not to be excited about the kingdom of God. The answer is not more striving. It's not more straining. It's not trying to be more obedient. The answer is always Jesus The answer is always in the cry of Hosanna. The answer is a weak person crying to the Lord, the meek King who rides into our hearts, who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That is to love God more than we love anything else, which is the call of the Christian life. My brothers and sisters, God calls you to love him more than you love anything else. And the only way for you to do this is for the meek and the lowly Lord Jesus to ride into the temple of your hearts as you cry out, I am the evil. I am the disease. I am the problem. Oh Lord, make me a dwelling place of God that your kingdom may be more dear to me than anything else in this life. And so would you pray with me together as we invite the Messiah and the Lord Jesus to ride into our hearts today and to establish his kingdom in the way that only he can do. Pray with me in your hearts. Lord Jesus Christ, we are by nature covenant-breakers, oath-breakers, law-breakers. And so easily, Lord Jesus, the externals of our life can look good, but there's no fruit there. And so we cry out to you, Lord Jesus Christ, ride into our hearts, we pray, and establish your victorious kingdom in our hearts so that each of us here present today may love you More than we love anything else, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.